Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Raise your hands if you went back to school this week. <laughs> wow, only you? I only saw like one and a half hands go up. Who's going back to school this week? Oh, yeah. All right. So um, hopefully those of you who have already been back to school, you're getting into it a little bit. Those of you who have not been back to school, you might want to start practicing getting up at, you know, five o'clock in the morning or whatever it is uh, so that you can be ready uh, when the time comes and not be exhausted the first day. Um, so before we start, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for uh, our students, our teachers, our bus drivers, our school nurses, our administrators, everybody who's uh, getting ready to uh, populate our school buildings uh, this year, we ask a special blessing on them. We ask that you would uh, help our children to learn in an uh, environment that is safe, uh, an environment that uh, is uh, just a comfort to them and not a stress. Uh, ask for the teachers and administrators, all of the adults, that they uh, will have wisdom, that they will teach uh, the things that they are uh, supposed to teach, and ask that you would just uh, lay your blessing over all of our schools. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Daniel chapter 5 this morning. Um, and if you want to open your Bibles to chapter 5, we, we're just going to kind of go down through a little bit. Uh, we're not going to read everything because it is a long chapter. But over the past few weeks, uh, we've been uh, preaching through a sermon series called Faith Under Fire. And we've been looking at some amazing events that happened uh, soon after the kingdom of Judah was taken captive uh, by the Babylonians. People, uh, people of Judah were God's people. They were part of the people of Israel. And they were taken into exile by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And we met Daniel and Hananiah, uh, Mishael and Azariah, who were better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know them mostly by those names. And these were four teenagers in Judah when they were taken captive and they were brought in. They were indoctrinated into the Babylonian culture, into the education system, and eventually when they hit around their early 20s, uh, they proved themselves to be worthy of roles in the king's government, the king of Babylon. And Daniel was given power and wisdom by God to interpret dreams. His friends were protected physically uh, from a burning, fiery furnace after they refused to bow down and worship a false idol. And they refused to do that because they were people of God, because they said, we do not bow to idols. God has told us that's, that we worship the one true God, whether we have to die for it or not. And we saw them being rescued from the king's hand and from the fiery furnace. And last week, we saw the king Nebuchadnezzar, who had witnessed all of these things, finally got to the point where God said, it's time for you to learn who I am. I'm going to humble you. I'm going to take the kingdom away from you for a time. And I'm going to alter your mind. You're going to think as a beast. And you're going to live out in the field as a beast for seven years. Until you come to understand that God, that I give kingdoms to who I will. Take them from who I will. That I am the one living God, the one God 
who can do these things, not all of these other gods that you worship. So that's what we looked at last week. And now we come to Daniel chapter 5. And we're going to just start reading right in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And we're going to stop right there because we've got this new king coming into the picture, Nebuchadnezzar. He's, he's gone. Nebuchadnezzar is, has long since died. And from the beginning of Daniel chapter 1 up until this night, over 65 years has passed in those four chapters. So we're looking at a big span of time. And in the first four chapters, we saw some of the events that happened during King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He's been dead for about 20 years. And since he has been dead, Babylon has seen five rulers rise up. And Babylon's greatness started falling away little by little as each of these kings came on board. Their culture started to die. Just five years after the king's death, the fourth new ruler, five, five years, fourth new ruler comes and tries to get things together. But basically all he's doing is quelling rebellions and keeping the kingdom from going into complete chaos. So just in this short period of time since King Nebuchadnezzar died, things are just falling apart. And eventually, this king, his name was uh, Nabodius. Let me try that again. Nabonidus. He gives up. The king gives up and he says, I'm moving. And he moves clear across the land, nowhere near Babylon. And, he's, and he lives there. And he tells his son, Belshazzar, you take charge. You deal with this mess. I'm, I'm, I'm retiring. Now, he still remained the king. In name, at least. Belshazzar, he was the one that was actually ruling. And that's where we find ourselves here in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. And the interesting thing about Daniel chapter 5, how many of you have spent some time in the Bible? How many of you have, have found any dates? Anybody ever find a date in the Bible? I've, I've read my Bible, and, and, and I've never found like a specific date. And even here, we don't find a date. But if you study, if you uh, start reading like commentaries and things like that, you will know that a lot of times people are trying to take a guess at when something might have happened, what year it might have happened in. Well, we actually know from historians that Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, started on October 11th. 539 BC. That's based on our calendar of today. And they have actually worked that out. Any, any history buffs here, you know the importance of dates. You know that knowing a date is important. And Belshazzar is the king on October 11th, 539 BC. And we learned that he is throwing this party. Right? So it says, he uh, had a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. This was most likely a religious feast to one of the gods of Babylon. And this is where he is. 
And in verse 2, we read Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So the word here for tasted, we see that uh, when he tasted the wine, this actually means that he judged the wine. So he took some of the wine, he drank some of the wine, and he judged it to be good for his guests, his thousand lords. So he gives approval for the rest of the guests to drink. And it's apparent here that he feels like this wine is really, really good. We can't just drink out of Dixie cups this wine here, folks. We gotta go get the good stuff. My, my, my uh, grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, he took a whole bunch of gold and silver stuff from the temple in Jerusalem when he uh, went and, and conquered that kingdom. We're going to use that stuff. We're going to drink from the silver and the gold. And he sent and had these vessels taken from the king's treasury and brought in so that he could impress his friends. And these vessels would have included cups. They would have included what we uh, might know as flagons. A flagon is kind of a, a pitcher that you would pour uh, wine or drink out of. And according to uh, Numbers chapter 28, Verse 7, these vessels were used to pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. This is their use in the temple for the people of Israel. And these drink offerings, if you read through uh, Numbers, if you read through uh, the first couple of books of the Old Testament, these happened every single day. Drink offerings happened daily, and they also happened weekly, and they also happened monthly, and they also happened during feast days. Drink offerings were very important to the worship of God. We would pour out these drink offerings while we were making our sacrifices, while we were praying. So all of these items would have been consecrated. They would have been set aside, prayed over by the priests, and their use was for the use of worshiping God. So King Belshazzar pulls these cups. And we don't know if he knew that's what they were for, but he knew they came from a temple. And we knew from everything that we've heard from King Nebuchadnezzar that probably you don't drink out of the God's cups. But he decided he was going to drink out of Israel's God's cup. So they drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. The king desecrated these holy items so that he and his friends could party. And we read on in verse 5 after they have started drinking. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. The hand chose the brightest wall in the room, the one opposite the lampstand, so that the king could absolutely see 
what was being written. And naturally, this sight, I mean, imagine human fingers over here on the wall just writing stuff. Disembodied, nothing else, just the fingers. Would that freak you out? It would freak me out. It freaked the king out, too. He was frightened in Daniel 5, 6. He says, then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. Now, this is not Scooby-Doo knocking together, okay? This is not <laughs> I mean, this is like getting ready to pass out, like all the blood has drained, and you're just, your knees come together, and you're kind of ready to fall over. This is how frightened the king is. And the next several verses uh, of Daniel chapter 5 tell us that he is so frightened that he calls his magicians and his astrologers and all these wise men of Babylon to tell them, read, read this writing on the wall and tell me what it means. I don't know what it means. And he wants to know. And they couldn't do it. And the king is still scared. And the king is still perplexed. And the queen, his, his queen, who was not at the party, entered the room. She had heard from somebody that something weird was going on. And she entered the room and she told King Belshazzar about a man named Daniel. Daniel, who King Nebuchadnezzar had made his chief magician during his reign. And he has the gift of interpreting dreams and he can interpret this for you. And she tells him this. And in verse 13, we read, then Daniel was brought before the king. Now, something I find interesting, and there's not a whole lot of description about why, but something I find interesting is how come every time the astrologers and the magicians and the wise men of the country are called, Daniel's not with them. That kind of I have a question about, I want to ask Daniel about that when we get to heaven. Why were you somewhere else? Why weren't you with everybody else? Because he was part of that group, even though he was obviously separated as a person of God. But he wasn't there. He's brought in. And the king starts out by praising Daniel. I have heard so many great things about you, Daniel. I am so glad you've come to my party tonight. Please, 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 please help me. You're the greatest. If you help me, I'm going to give you some gifts too. I'm going to give you some gold. I'm going to do some of these other things. And Daniel just <laughs> listens to the king for a minute. And he's like, I don't need your gifts. I don't need anything that you have to offer. But he does say, nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And in verses 18 through 21, before Daniel gives the interpretation, he gives Belshazzar a little family history lesson. And we're not going to read all of that, but he recounts to him everything that happened to Nebuchadnezzar while Daniel had been in Babylon. He talked to him about basically everything we've learned about Nebuchadnezzar in chapters 1 through 4, including how God humbled him for seven years how God made him think like a beast until he would know in Daniel 5.21, it says that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you'll remember if you were here last week or if you watched the sermon last week online, 
Nebuchadnezzar wrote a letter to all of the people in the world saying this, saying that he has come to understand that the most high God rules the kingdoms of mankind, will set over them whom he will. He will humble whoever is prideful. And Daniel also reminds Belshazzar, you, his son, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Belshazzar, you know your family history. Nebuchadnezzar was the most famous king up to that time in Babylon. He had done great things. He had done mighty things. He made Babylon the great and wonderful city that it was. You knew this story and you ignored it. You decided, well, I'm not Nebuchadnezzar. I'm better than he is. And you have ignored that story. Now, just a little side note here when you see, and you, his son, Belshazzar, the word son there actually means direct descendant. It's not that Nebuchadnezzar was his dad. It was that he fell in that line. Nebuchadnezzar was most likely his grandfather. So his dad had married into Nebuchadnezzar's family, married one of the daughters, and he is the grandson. I just wanted to point that out. Sometimes we read these things and it's like, well, I didn't, Nebuchadnezzar would have been really, really old when he had this kid, right? So just wanted to point that out. But Belshazzar would have had direct knowledge of what happened to his grandfather. And then Daniel gives his indictment. He says, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose all, whose all are all your ways you have not honored. Daniel takes a moment here and he glorifies God in front of the king, in front of a thousand lords, in front of the wives, in front of the concubines, and he speaks up about the greatness of God. And he tells them, silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, stone, these things have no ability to see. They have no ability to hear when you pray to them. They have no ability to know anything because they're inanimate objects. But there is one God. There is one true God who gives life, who gives breath. He is the one who can see you. He is the one who can hear you when you pray to him. And he is the one who knows you. Your grandfather spoke of him. Your grandfather wrote of him to all the world and told them his, about his greatness and about his unique 
singular ability to hear and to see and to know. But you decided to ignore that. You decided to ignore the witness of your grandfather and you chose to worship and pray to these objects. And all of these objects are things that my God, the one true God, created. They didn't make themselves. My living, breathing God created them. And then Daniel, after he gives this indictment, finally he turns to the wall. Daniel 5, 24 to 25. Then from his presence, Daniel is saying this now, from God's presence, the hand was sent and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. Some translations use a parson, but they mean the same thing. The king couldn't read these words, but these words are words he should have been able to read because they are in Aramaic. And Aramaic was the common language of that region at the time. This was the language of the merchants. This was the language of the, of the lower and middle class, the people who actually did the work. So maybe the king never bothered to learn it. But this was the primary language in Babylon at the time, was this Aramaic. Aramaic had replaced Hebrew as the language of the Jews around the 700s BC because they wanted to be able to trade. They wanted to be able to sell their wares, buy things. They learned Aramaic and they used it. Now, some of the academic elite still used Hebrew, but most everybody else used this language. And the Babylonians used this language. So we might think, well, why couldn't the king read it? Well, he maybe didn't learn it because he was, you know, upper class. Or maybe he was just so frightened out of his mind and all of his guests with him that he couldn't really just remember anything. And we don't know, but something happened where he could not read these basic words. So after Daniel reads the words to him, he provides the interpretation. It says, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Perez is the singular form of that word parson that we read in the earlier verse. It means the same thing. Now we notice here in the, uh, the translation, mene, mene. That word is used twice, even though it means the same thing. Do you know why it was used twice? The same reason almost every other place in the Bible where we see a word used twice is used. It means pay attention. It means this is important information. This is usually what happens. So for example, when Jesus says something like, truly, truly, I say to you, or for my King James folks, verily, verily, I say to you. 
Truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus says this several times in the Bible. Do you know what the word for truly, truly is? Amen. Amen, amen. Instead of using it at the end as, a, as the end of a prayer, Jesus uses, it at, Jesus uses it at the beginning. Pay attention. This next part is important. For example, in John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly. Put this in maybe some language that teachers and students might understand. Truly, truly, put down your cell phones and look up here. <laughs> truly, truly, pick up your pencils and start writing. Truly, truly, this is going to be on the final exam. This is important. And I'm indicating that by saying, Amen, Amen. This is important stuff. Mene, mene. These words came from the fingers of God. On that wall, God wanted Belshazzar and all of his guests to know that they should have no doubt that their kingdom was coming to an end. It's gonna happen. And then the next word, tekel, was an Aramaic business term in ancient times Merchants would use this term. They would use these uh, scales or balances. They looked a little bit something like this. So you can see in the front there, you see uh, the weights. And they would take these weights. These were preset, pre-known weights. And they would, they would put a weight on one side. And then whatever you owed corresponded to that weight. And usually it was a weight of gold. So they would put this on one side. They'd take your gold. They'd put it on the other side. And if you paid enough money, the scale would balance. And if you didn't pay enough money, the gold would go up in the air and the weight would come down. And if that was the case, the merchant would look at you and say, you have been measured and found wanting. Take hell. Another way to say it today, uh, you're a little short. Right? Or you're a little light. Let's, let's have some more money here. And in this instance, Daniel told Belshazzar that he didn't measure up to being a king. He didn't measure up to being a good leader for Babylon. Kingship was on one side of the scale and Belshazzar was on the other. You don't measure up. You have been weighed, and you have been found wanting. And then this last word, parson or a parson, in some translations means division. And Daniel uses the simplified form of Perez to tell the king, your kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon, the greatest kingdom ever to exist on the face of the earth, is going to be split. The Medes are going to take some, Persians are going to take some. Daniel told the king all of these things. 
And what the king didn't know was that preparations for an attack on Babylon had been happening weeks and maybe months in advance. See, the Persians who were led by Cyrus the Great worked out a plan because Babylon's walls were impenetrable. There was no way anybody was going to climb them. They were so thick you weren't going to destroy them. But the Persians found a weakness. The walls were built over the river Euphrates. So you, and actually probably a little bit under the river Euphrates. So you couldn't get there. You couldn't get into the walls, but the Persians said, you know what? Let's dig a trench. So they started up before the river got to the, to the city. And they started digging this trench. And do you know what happened when they started digging this trench? The water from the Euphrates started to get diverted before it got to the city of Babylon. And they continued to dig, and they continued to dig. And without Babylon even realizing it, the level of the river when it came through the city had started to decrease and decrease. And, and it happened just a little bit at a time because they were only digging a little bit at a time. They never even noticed until October 11, 539 BC, when the Persian army marched down to Babylon, waded into the river, and just walked under the wall. This thing that God told Belshazzar about with the handwriting on the wall had already been in place for months. And nobody in Babylon even noticed. That's how prideful the city was and its military and its kings. They didn't even recognize that the water levels were going down. They didn't recognize all of a sudden they had a chink in the armor. And we know this because a thousand lords were sitting in a banquet hall drinking wine when the Persians came and took over the city and historians say without a battle, there was no fighting, all there was was killing. On October 11th and into the morning of October 12th, 539, and we read in Daniel 530, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The Medes got the part that were just captured that night. Persians got another part. We read this story of Belshazzar. And I mean, I've read this story a number of times because, you know, you, 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 the writing on the wall and the disembodied fingers and all of that, and it's really interesting, and, you know, you just kind of read it for what's there. But sometimes we have a hard time in passages like this discerning maybe, well, what, what does this have to do with me now? I'm not a king. I'm not royalty. I'm not, I'm not the head of a country. I'm not the president of the United States. But how many of us are leaders? 
How many of us are business owners or business managers? Teachers, preachers, judges, politicians, people in authority and having responsibility over large numbers of people. We don't have to be kings to understand this story, but if we're leaders, we might want to take a little bit closer look at it. Because God, if we are Christian, God calls us to act in a godly way when we are managing our businesses, when we are leading our classes, when we are doing those things that are supposed to be taking care of people. God has a high standard for leaders, especially church leaders. We're supposed to make sure that we know how to take care of things in a godly way. And we also might have a hard time with this idea of, of them worshiping these idols, right? How many of you have an idol of gold at home that's set up in a shrine that you get in, and you bow down to every day? How many of you have a giant uh, glass box that you sit in front of every day and watch moving pictures? How many of you have one of these things. You think this can be an idol? We don't think of idols the way that they write about them in the Bible, so sometimes we kind of miss it. But a lot of times technology can become an idol. When's the last time that you consciously decided to turn this off? Church on Sunday mornings. No, you didn't. I've heard phones going off. How many of you have decided, I'm, gonna, I'm taking my phone, and I am putting it over here, I'm turning it off, and I am leaving the house for the day? But Pastor Joe, I won't know how to get a hold of anybody, and they won't be able to get a hold of me, and what if I'm involved in a terrible car accident? You've been driving for 47 years. You've never had a car accident in your life. But we, we don't. We don't turn them off. How many of you ha have said in your mind, and I know a couple of you have, said in your mind, I am not looking at Facebook. A lot of people give up Facebook for Lent. Did you know that? Yeah, because they are so entrenched in using this. And if you don't believe me, if you think that you don't have a problem with, 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 a, with your cell phone, do a little test. I did a little test um, at the end of the school year. I was, just, I was curious. So on uh, May 31st, two days before the school year ended, I downloaded this app. This app is called Stay Free. And just so you know, if you, it, that's, a, that's the, uh, the Android version. Um, and if you download it, you gotta be 18 to use it. So, but try, if you have an Android, download stay free. Or if you're an Apple user, they make it really easy. Go into your settings and click on screen time. And you'll get some very interesting information. And before I say anything else, how many of you would be uncomfortable looking at screen time or stay free to see exactly how much you use your phone? So I did this, I downloaded this on May 31st, and I'm like, I'm gonna, I wanna see what happens. I wanna see how I use, and it's the summertime, right? I, I'm, not, I'm not working 
at the school, right? So I've got a lot of free time on my hands. I just want to see what, what am I using? And I pretty much forgot about it until I was writing this sermon. And I finally looked at the results yesterday. And then I prayed for forgiveness. <laughs> because according to the app, my daily average use on my phone of just Facebook just Facebook. Anybody want to take a guess? Average day, on a, an average day, how much did I use Facebook? Two, say two hours? Five hours? Three hours, one minute, and 41 seconds was my daily average. The daily average use worldwide is less than two hours. Over three hours a day I spent on Facebook throughout the summer. Some days more, some days less. They had a uh, maximum day that you used it, and I'm not even going to tell you what that one was. <laughs> That's between me and God. But I also tracked the amount of time. I have one game on my phone that I play, SimCity. Basically, you just build a city, right? And you, you build all these things, and you make all these things. One game that I play on my phone just as a distraction, just as some downtime. 45 minutes a day playing a game. You put that together with Facebook, that's almost four hours a day I spent on my phone doing nothing. Doing nothing. Checking out friends, which you know is harder and harder to do on Facebook because you got 8,000 ads that pop up after everybody's thing watching dumb videos, playing this game, four hours a day. An idol is anything that becomes more important and more valuable to us than God. That's what an idol is. Do you think my smartphone is an idol for me? Let me put it a different way. Do you think I spend over four hours a day reading and studying my Bible and praying? What else could I have done with that four hours? Visited friends, hung out with family, volunteer someplace, write better sermons, you know, whatever. And I'm picking on smartphones this morning, but there are literally thousands of things that we do that whether we're conscious of it or not, we're putting before God. I picked on cell phones because they're easy to pick on. But what are our idols? What are those things that we end up valuing more than we value our relationship with God? That's a tough question to answer because we don't want to think that we put anything above God. We want to think we can give up anything if God wants us to give it up. And we also know that that's not really true. Because I could make an excuse, well, I have to have my cell phone with me at all times because if a church member calls and needs me to come and visit them or something happens, um, I need to go and be able to, to do those things. And that's a, that's a noble excuse. 
But what am I really doing? Four hours watching stupid videos and playing a dumb game. Cell phone's my idol. Think of it a different way. Because we don't like this idea of, of thinking about idols. What are the things in our lives that if it came right down to it, fingers would appear and start writing on the walls of our heart, you have been measured and you have been found wanting. Because that's really what it comes down to. What are we doing that's not pleasing God or that's not serving God? And more importantly, do we care enough to do anything about it? Cell phone use, man, that's a habit. And it's a hard one to break. There are thousands of other habits, equally hard to break and equally valued higher than our relationship with God. So we got to ask ourselves, what am I willing to do? What am I willing to do to grow my relationship with God deeper, to make sure that God is the most valuable person in my life? above everything else. What am I willing to do? And that answer, honestly, truly, can only come when you stop and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to work with you while you evaluate your life, while you evaluate your choices, while you evaluate the things that you do. That's the only time these answers will come because spirit-led reflection is the only way to get closer to the Father. And I want to encourage you to do that. Let the Holy Spirit guide you in reflection of your life because it's the only way that our faith will stand up under fire is if we let the Holy Spirit guide us to what we are supposed to be doing. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for schools that have opened, schools that are getting ready to open. We thank you for these students, teachers, faculty, staff, Father, we know that there are a lot of Christian teachers, teachers who love you. Father, we know that the world makes it very difficult for us to talk about you. But Father, we know that the greatest witness sometimes is the way we act the way we do things. Father, help us to examine our lives. 
Help us to find those things that are not useful to building your kingdom. Help us to find those things that are not filling a need in our community, or in our church. Father, forgive us. Forgive me for my idol worship. Forgive us for sometimes just not even thinking about how some of the things we do affect our relationship with you. I ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Help us to be brave, to be bold, and to be humble. And to ask the spirit to help us evaluate those things in our lives that maybe we should tear down. These idols that we should destroy. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for these people. And I thank you that you've been so gracious as to be able to do the things that have built your kingdom through this congregation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, we are going to end our sermon series, Faith Under Fire, with one of the most famous Bible stories ever written uh, about an 80-year-old man who decides that he's going to pray to God when he's not supposed to, according to the law, and gets thrown into a den of hungry lions for it. I hope that you can be here next week. This week, I pray that you will take some time Maybe first thing in the morning when you get up, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal those things that you can let go of, things that you can do instead that will allow you to help build the kingdom of God and build your relationship with him. God bless you this week.